Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, debt and the outlook for 2016. We are here with the University of Chicago's Amr Sufi. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Welcome to a special Money Beat podcast, uh, special for several reasons. First reason is because this will be my last podcast. Yes, I'm, I'm announcing it right now that uh, Wednesday, January 13th, I will be the Powerball winner tonight, and uh, that will be the end of it. I'm going to get a billion and a half dollars. I know it's not lump sum. It's not after tax, whatever, blah, blah. Uh, I'm going to win a billion and a half dollars, everybody, and I am out of here. Uh, assuming that doesn't happen, though, and I do have to extend my career, hopefully today's guest will help me uh, look good for my bosses and we can we can make a little hay here. Uh, we're lucky to have in the studio with us today Amr Sufi, who works at the University of Chicago. He is the Bruce Lindsay Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Booth School there and author of the 2015 book House of Debt, published by University of Chicago Press. And you're in town today, so... Joining us for a little while here on the podcast. Glad to have you, Amr. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Glad to be here. You're in town for a conference tonight, right? That's right. We have the uh, Chicago Booth Economic Outlook event tonight. I'm doing it uh, with Randy Krosner, who's my f- colleague at the University of Chicago, who is, of course, on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve uh, under the uh, Bush administration a number of years ago. So it should be fun. Yeah. Can you give us uh, a little taste of what you guys plan on talking about tonight? Yeah. You know, Betty Lou from uh, from Bloomberg is, is going to be moderating the panel, and we'll talk about a lot of the hottest issues, things happening in China, things happening in Europe, things happening in the United States, uh, how exposed the United States is to a lot of uh, the mess that's going on worldwide. Uh, I imagine those will be uh, big topics of conversation tonight. So uh, in terms of just specifically your your outlook for 2016, where do you see the U.S. economy, the global economy, where do you see these things going? Well, so I think one of the nice things I like to point out is if you look, for example, at the World Bank uh, GDP growth forecast, they have consistently had to downgrade their forecast for 2015 and 2016 every year now for three years. So right now they're forecasting 2.9% world GDP growth. Which uh, is not great. Which is not great. Which is not great. Exactly. And I would say that that will end up being too optimistic just as they've been too optimistic in the past. So I would count myself as kind of a a bearish in terms of the real economy uh, for the global economy. For the U.S. economy, I think things are going reasonably well. The big question, which maybe we can discuss further, is how well can the U.S. perform if emerging markets and some of the other advanced economies are suffering a lot. And that's going to be, I think, a big question that we'll have to think about going forward. Yeah. Well, you know, you wrote this book, House of Debt, and this has kind of become your calling card, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've looked at debt from a certain – actually, you've managed to get your hands on a ton of information and you've kind of come up with a new view of debt and how it affects the economy. Where do we stand now in terms of how much debt we have – on, on household balance sheets, on public-private balance sheets. And let's just talk about the U.S., right? right? Let's try to keep it 
somewhat focused. Yeah. Where do we stand in terms of how much debt we are carrying and what that is doing to us? So the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape when it comes to the household balance sheet position. It got to be in a good shape through a very inefficient channel, and that was through defaults and foreclosures. So mortgage debt has fallen quite a bit in the United States, which has brought down the overall uh, household debt to income ratio. Auto debt is still growing at a pretty rapid clip. I think that market has been supported by lower gas prices, or else probably we would have started to see some problems. I think if gas prices ever do go back up, which who knows if it'll happen in the short run, that could spell trouble uh, for some of the auto loans, given how much they've been growing. I think the longer-term issue is really the student debt problem. Uh, Student debt has exploded in this country. It's over $1 trillion at this point. Um, I think it is holding back economic activity. I think the best research shows that people with student debt are far less likely to buy a car. They're less likely to buy a home. If you talk to any mortgage broker, they'll tell you, look, we have the overall debt-to-income ratio as one of our approval standards. And if you have a lot of student debt, you're not going to get approved for a loan because you're going to have just too much debt for us to make you a loan. So I think... um, Overall, I'd say there's been a lot of improvement, but I think the student debt issue still worries me, not in a cyclical sense, but in a kind of long-run drag-on growth sense, that a huge number of people, perhaps an entire generation, are going to be dragged down by student debt and have a difficult time really sustaining a kind of normal American lifestyle of buying goods, buying a car, buying a home. Is is debt – you know, it's, it's interesting. I saw a report this week from a guy, Brian Kelly, who a lot of people will know from CNBC. He's a money manager, uh, talking about the fact that we have had – he called it a debt super cycle. And I've seen other people talk about this as well, but his note was this week, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. And, and just making the point that when you talk about household, private, government debt, all – complete total debt for the U.S., the debt-to-GDP ratio, it's, it's over 250 percent, closer to 300 percent, and that that is a problem. And that is one of the things that is holding us back in terms of growth, that you just – you simply cannot grow when you have that much debt on your books. What do you make of that? What do you think of that? It, it, did, did we really just take all the debt of that we had before the crisis and really just kind of transfer it onto the public balance sheet and we're, we're – pretending that we achieved something and we really didn't? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, what an important distinction I would make is who is actually carrying the debt. I don't think all debt has an equally distortive effect on the economy and an equally bad drag on growth. So, for example, even among public debt, I think we need to distinguish debt, for example, at the U.S. federal government level, which I think is not very problematic. I'm an economist. A lot of people are very worried about the U.S. government debt position. I look at prices to tell me if I should be worried, and if anything, interest rates are at all-time lows. They continue to be low despite the Fed's attempts finally to try to start to increase them. On the other hand, I live in Chicago. I live in the state of Illinois, so I know that we have a massive pension crisis that could potentially be a huge drag on growth if we have to raise taxes. So I think this notion of a debt super cycle is useful, but I think it's important to distinguish who is actually carrying the debt. And at the end of the day, I think private sector debt is much more dangerous for growth, which I think we've shown in our research. But at the same time, I do believe that some of the public sectors, in particular the states that are suffering these pension problems, could end up hurting the economy in a significant way. And I speak uh, – that's close to home for me given that yeah. uh, I do live in the state of Illinois, which is in big trouble right now. Right. Well, I, I live in Jersey and we have the same thing. We have a huge pension problem. Uh, you know what? You mentioned private sector debt. Let's talk about that for a second because 
in the markets, you will all, always people will say they'll talk about cash on the books, right? They'll say, "Oh, corporations have a trillion and a half cash on the. They have all this money that they have that they can spend that they can do whatever they want with." They always want to talk about how much cash they have. They never want to talk about how much debt they have. And in my mind, there's a reason this thing is called a balance sheet because those two things have to balance out. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much debt on, if you have too much, if you have too much debt relative to what you have in cash, relative to what you have in operations, eventually that becomes a problem. Right. No, I think that's right, and especially if cash flows uh, start to suffer. Right. Because I think uh, one of the things that you're seeing right now play out is definitely in the ga- gas and oil industry. Yeah. I mean, there you've got yes. a huge problem. It's and you acute, see right. you see in a lot of environments actually how quickly uh, institutions can run through cash. I mean, an analogy going outside the U.S. is everyone's always said, well, China has such huge foreign exchange reserves. Well, yeah. it turns out you can burn through those very fast uh, when you're in trouble. And I think that's what we could see in the U.S. corporate sector. Right. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back. We'll talk a little more in depth about some of these things. So we'll be back just on the other side of this. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts, and check us out at WSJ.com slash podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, Money Beat. Welcome back. Paul Vini here with Amr Sufi from the University of Chicago. Uh, you've mentioned China, and let's talk about China for a second because mm-hmm. it's, it's front and center in everybody's minds. What do you think is going on in China right now? What do you think their problems are? I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm asking you cold. I don't know how deeply you've looked into China. So if no, you haven't I have. been checking it out, Feel free to you know say you haven't. Yeah, as a guy that's very interested in debt, you know it's almost right. impossible to okay. not look Good. at China. Then, <laughs> then, then tell me wh- what is going on in China so right now, and what I, should we worried? What should we be worried about? I am very bearish on China for a couple of reasons. First, I think if you look at data that are coming out of China that I actually believe, things like electricity consumption, things like right. uh, rail freight volumes. Here's a stunning uh, number that I saw just the other day in 2010. Electricity consumption growth in Japan was year over year 25% growth. In Japan? I'm sorry, in China. Oh, in China. China. Okay. In China was 25% growth. It was 10% growth in 2012. It was 0% growth in 2015. Wow. And then if you look at uh, rail freight volume in China, uh, in 2015, it was actually down 11%, which is the biggest decline that we've ever seen in history. So I think that the numbers already that we can believe coming out of China are telling a very bad story and something that I am quite concerned about, both for China and a lot of emerging markets that are actually uh, linked closely to China. And it's funny you say that because, you know, we all know what the official GDP numbers are. Uh, right. A host of, but everyone knows that those numbers are not reliable. Right. At all. Right. So if the situation is worse than what we think it is, and we are now talking about what is and I'll even say ostensibly the world's second largest economy, right? Exactly. You can't trust the numbers. I don't know why. It's always funny to me. We always say, oh, the world's second largest economy, but we don't trust the numbers. Right. It's a big economy. It's a big economy. (laughs) We don't know if it's exactly second. It is a massive economy that grew massively. Right. Uh, How... Are they are they going to have a hard landing? I mean, can they avoid it? And how how do they avoid it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think... 
Look, one of the things, you don't have to be an expert on China. What we know from history is that China has essentially walked down the road over the last six or seven years that almost always leads to economic disaster. And that is what I call the two Ds, a huge rise in debt, both financial sector debt, corporate debt, even household debt has risen dramatically in China. And the other one is, I would say, durables, which is overinvestment in cars, in commercial real estate, uh, in houses. Building cities. Building cities. It's exactly what's right. going on in like, not maybe building cities in the U.S., but, you know, excessive amounts of home buying, excessive right. amounts of durable purchases. So we know from history, this goes all the way back to the great economic historian Charles Kindleberger. We know over and over, this is the same cycle we see that ends very badly. In terms of how they avoid it, people have saying, said, oh, China's different for two reasons. One, they have a large amount of reserves. And two, it's a centrally planned economy. I'm not convinced that either of those things are going to matter much. For example, Japan in the late 1980s had a lot of uh, mm -hmm. current uh, foreign exchange reserves. They still had two decades of uh, bad economic growth, still continuing even today. And also, I mean, the notion that a centrally commanded economy is somehow going to adjust more easily, I mean, that puts a lot of faith in government officials right. knowing how to reallocate resources in the midst of a tremendous decline in demand, which is, I think, exactly what you're going to see. Uh, yeah. I mean, just the last two weeks should really kind of raise an eyebrow at least about that notion. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's not exactly like policymakers in China have shown such great performance right. in the recent past. Right. Uh, let's talk for a second about debt and some of the things you wrote in, in the book, because one of the things I thought was interesting is you you sort of laid it out that the real problem behind the crisis in 2008, the, the recession, the collapse, was the fact that we had too much household debt and people didn't appreciate what that actually meant to the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and what I really want to get at is, say we you know accept that, we believe it, that's great, the crisis happens, uh, the the you know, we could sit here and talk about what the government did all day long, but mm -hmm. the government chose to focus on the banks, not the you know. Mm -hmm. My question for you is, if the reason we were growing back then was because of all this debt we were taking on, which was right. true, people were taking out uh, HELOCs and credit lines and just spending the money. Yeah, you know, right. it, it was it was fake growth, is what right. it really was. Mm -hmm. How do we get to a place where we actually? And I think this is still an issue because I think we have fake growth now. Right. How do we get to a place where we have real growth? What do we need to do as a nation to get out of this this cycle where we are just addicted to debt? Right. I think uh, there's a couple of numbers you can look at. So, for example, the fact that car purchases have been a huge bright spot for the U.S. economy is, to me, very related to the fact that auto loans are at right. historical highs. So right. I think you're exactly right. We've gone back to this kind of same formula, which is consumer debt-driven growth. I think there's two ways you go. One, I think every macroeconomist will tell you that you need productivity growth. You need mm -hmm. workers to become more productive, to be better educated. At the end of the day, that's the only way you get long-run sustainable growth. In the short run, I am, however, sympathetic to kind of the more Larry Summers idea that at the federal government level, you could perhaps get some more spending to try to help us through this. Again, I look at prices, and when you look at the price of U.S. Treasuries, if anything, 
the world is clamoring for us, for the U.S. government at least, to borrow more, not right, less. Right. And I think that money could be better used for things like infrastructure investment, things we know. I mean, I drive around in Chicago, so I know what the roads are like, although the Chicago government probably has no money to spend, but the U.S. federal government may, may have some. So I'm not in general an economist that believes government spending cures all ills. But I think in this case, until we get the longer run kind of productivity growth that we need, it may help to have the U.S. government do some more infrastructure spending, build things that they've been thinking about building on for a while. I mean, just flying into LaGuardia Airport, you know, you know, it's not exactly the nicest airport in the world. Sorry to criticize New York while I'm here. Um, you know, Midway and O'Hare could use some work as well. Uh, yeah, look, I, I drive around the roads here, too, and they are <laughs> they're a disaster. I mean, they're, they're horrible. I've thought for years that you could... You, you could legitimately build a road on top of every road in New York City <laughs> and the whole area if you wanted to really alleviate the problems. That's what you had to basically do. There's right. so much congestion. There's so much overuse. The road, right. All the roads were planned 80 years ago. None right. of them are fit for, right. for, for what we have today. I have a picture that, you know, this is a podcast, everyone. You can't see the picture. You're going to have to accept my description of it, yeah. <laughs> uh, that I, I've used on the on, um our post, not for a while, but I used to go into the Library of Congress and get the old, you know, open uh, public domain pictures. And it was one picture that I got. It was from the 19th century. And it's two guys standing next to each other. One one guy is very well dressed in all his fine men. He's, you can tell that he's he's wealthy. Yeah. The other guy is in rags. He's got a, you know, sick looking hound dog. He's pulling uh-huh. his pockets out there empty, you know. And the caption under the one guy, under the rich guy, says... Uh, I forget exactly. It says, you know, basically it says no debt. Yeah. And under the other guy, it says all debt or yeah. all credit. You know, yeah. it was all credit. The, my my point is that back in the day, debt credit they were this was in uh, this was illustrative of how people viewed these right, things. Right. There was a very very negative stigma attached to taking on debt. That's right. There's no stigma attached to it today. Right. In fact, there's a stigma against not taking on debt. Yeah. Because I used to be someone that I hated credit cards. I, I didn't want one, and I wouldn't get one. Right. And I only got one eventually because I realized I was actually having problems. Nobody will give you anything if you don't have debt. Right. If you don't have a credit history right. with the so, debt. So you know. uh, how much of this is – the? you know, how do you change that perception? Can you change that perception? I mean, I think I think you're exactly right. And in fact, actually, in the 1920s, there was a huge boom in household debt, and economic historians have pointed out – that it was, in fact, a change in attitude towards debt that led to a huge increase in debt in the 1920s, which it shouldn't be surprising that the most severe two recessions in the history of the last century of the United States were both preceded by big increases in debt. I will say that I do get the impression that living through the Great Recession has changed people's mindsets at least somewhat. I do see more aggressive attempts uh, for, say, lower to middle-income Americans at paying down their debt. Um, but I agree that, if anything, the cultural attitude towards debt is not nearly as a negative. And in some sense, I think this reflects just a broader short-termism that everybody has. People yeah. don't think about, you know, with things like Twitter and things like Facebook, you know, people think about the immediate thing, which is, I want to buy something. They right. don't think about, well, I actually am going to have to pay back this debt someday. Um, and I think that's a general cultural phenomenon that's affecting all kinds of things, people's education choices, people's choices about what they buy. And of course, I think one of the most dangerous things is this huge buildup in consumer debt. Uh, and we, we have to go here, but I want to ask you one more question. At, at one point, I don't know if you, I don't know if it was in the book or something else I read by you, you had talked about the fact that 
back in the day, and, and you mentioned that the Code of Hammurabi. I mean, yeah. you went. I'm talking about back in the day. You right. Know, Three thousand BC. Was, right. There was an understanding that at some point debts would the the ledger would become too far weighted to one side and debts would be written off. Right. We don't have that today. Right. No, and I think, you know, this gets into the morality of like how we think about debt write downs. And I think one of the points that we're trying to make in the book and using the Code of Hammurabi, which by the way, just quickly, the examples in the Code of Hammurabi, it says if there's a drought, automatically all the debts of the farmers will be forgiven because it's not the farmer's fault that there was right. a drought. Um and I think what we have to understand is that there's two sides to this equation, that creditors make some really bad decisions during booms, lending to people that they know can't pay. Mm -hmm. And so on the morality play that we have, we should blame creditors just as much as we blame debtors for this artificial debt-driven growth. Um, I think this is playing out in Europe. It's played out in, in a lot of different places. Uh, but there does seem to be a lack of understanding now when people are extending credit that they are in some sense on the hook if the money doesn't come in. Uh, and instead, we have, I think, sometimes governments making decisions to bail out banks and not bail out homeowners, and people don't seem to have a problem with that. Well, I have a right. problem with the government bailing out anybody, including the creditors. You saw the same thing play out in Europe, for example, with the, the very obvious moves by the ECB to bail out German banks in favor of mm -hmm. the Greek people, and then everyone points at the Greek people. Aren't they irresponsible? Aren't they lazy? Right. Whereas, well, what, right. what about the German banks that were lending to them? And, right. so, and it was I, nasty. That was a nasty fight. Exactly. And yeah. so I just think there needs to be a little bit more equal treatment in terms of who is causing this inefficiency during the boom phase. Yeah. Uh, do you think that will actually happen? Uh, I think things tend to happen according to political power, and I know creditors are far more politically powerful than debtors, so probably not. <laughs> right. Uh, that's a good answer. Uh, and sadly, that's the answer we're going to have to leave it on. Amr, thank you very much yeah, for coming thank, in. Thank you very much. Everyone, uh, you will never hear from me again because I am winning this Powerball January 13th, Wednesday. I am winning it, billion and a half dollars, and um, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm telling you right now, it's happening. Uh, yeah, I'll see you on Friday. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.